The Midwest Crime Files is an unscripted true crimes podcast. In it, we discuss heinous crimes and how they are committed. Viewer discretion is advised. Welcome to the Midwest Crime Files. I'm your host, Gina. And I'm Chris. We're here to tell you the stories of small towns and the heinous crimes that changed us forever. So, continuing on with our serial killer theme this season, um, we did do a live last week and we had uh, quite a few people show up and it lasted a lot longer than we anticipated. Yeah, our one hour live went to two hours and it was a good time. I think I think everybody... Oh, I had fun. You know, I haven't heard any bad compliments, or except for my parents saying that we dropped the F-bomb too much, but, you know, say la vie. So, speaking of um, our live and our tribe and the people we like to hang out with, um, we do have several new Patreon supporters that we need to give a shout out to. So, do you want to say one and I'll say one? Uh, welcome to the tribe, Natasha. Danielle. Brittany. Samantha. Caitlin. And Sarah Serena. Welcome to our tribe, and thank you guys for your support. It's because of you guys that we can do this. That we can do this, really. Right. I mean, I don't know what else, what I was going to try to say there, but, you know, and like the live events, when we're giving stuff away, you know, that's what we kind of, like, that's what helps us able to do that kind of stuff, and we appreciate you guys so much. Like the post I said, I put on uh, the Facebook or, uh, last week, Thank you guys, you know, we love you guys so much and we thank you guys for just joining us on this journey and doing things with us. And I did give at least a part of our big announcement away on Friday, so I'll let you guys all know now too. Um, I have been interviewed and will be featured on Investigation Discovery in the next couple of months. I can't give you any more details yet, but as I um, as it gets closer, I will share all that with you. Yep, and I was like a dad on a, with a kid going to school for the first time with a camera, and I took so many pictures that... Whenever we're able to actually talk about it, I'll post those on the Facebook page as well. Yep. So, let's jump right into this week's story. Yet another serial killer story. This I'm, one is a little fucked. I'm going to warn you. I'm liking that we're doing, like, we have to do this whole season of, of serial killers. Yeah. This one's a little... I'm tasking you with that, with that right now. I'm, I'm working on it, but I'm going to warn you. You're going to get mad. Okay, but it's, it's kind of weird that we ha- can find so many serial, uh, serial killers. In the in, Midwest? In, in just the Midwest. Right. A lot of these in Illinois. All right. So this one is called The Highway Killer, The Victims of Larry Eiler. Yes. Okay. So be prepared because Chris is going to have some feelings. I know it. Between 1982 and 1984, young men throughout the Midwest were disappearing. They would later be found dead along the side of one of the many highways. This is mostly in northern Illinois and northern Indiana, sort of that Chicagoland sort of area. The number of victims was multiplying rapidly, eventually making it inconceivable that these crimes were not related. You know, at first, maybe they're not related, but... It became so rapid and so many that we couldn't really deny the fact that this was a serial killer. Men in the LGBTQ community were on high alert, fearing a serial killer was targeting their community. This is the twisted tale and the road to justice, the story of the highway killer, the victims of Larry Eiler. 
So we're going to start just by talking about Larry Eiler. So picture. Ooh, I already don't like that shirt that that motherfucker's wearing. Oh, because he has a Marine Corps shirt on? Yeah. So first impression of him just looking at his picture. For the 80s, maybe like normal looking. Like. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, he may be even a little bit like somewhat attractive. Oh, I wouldn't go that far. He's got sunken eyes. I don't know. He looks a little evil, though. Right. But, of course, that's because I know what I know about him. Otherwise, I may not think that. Right. Well, so, continue with the story. Larry Eiler was born December 21st, 1952 in Crawfordsville, Indiana. He was the youngest of four children. His mother and father divorced when he was just a toddler. And his father was an abusive alcoholic. And he had three stepfathers following his father. And they were all abusive alcoholics as well. So his mom had a type? Apparently. Uh, one of his stepfathers actually disciplined Larry on a somewhat regular basis by holding the boy's head under scalding hot water. That is fucked up. But you want to know what? I've heard of that like that kind of shit all the time. Like dipping feet into boiling water like for babies and shit like that for punishment because they're crying. And it's like, what the fuck is wrong with you guys? Right. Like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to fucking put your head under scalding hot water because that'll make you fucking remember whatever the hell you're going to try to, like, what I'm trying to have you remember, you know? Yeah, it was pretty, I mean, it was a childhood definitely marked by abuse. Um, Larry's mother worked a variety of jobs to support her family. She worked as a waitress and in a factory. At times, Larry and his sister, the two youngest of the children, were placed in foster care for periods of times while his mother was working and not able to take care of them. That's kind of odd, isn't it? I would think. Like, I've, I've never heard of somebody going to foster care and then... I, I, maybe it's just something I've never heard of, but that just seems a little odd to me. They were in and out, and Larry would later say that these absences from his mom helped to make them a closer family i i don't know larry eiler had definitely a rough upbringing he was bullied he acted out as a result of being bullied and eventually this led him to being placed in a boy's home ran by the catholic church um so there is no evidence and no proof, but there is strong suspicions that while he was at the boy's home, Larry Eiler may have been sexually abused by a priest. But I want to stress that there is absolutely zero evidence of that. Okay. Um, but that is something that a lot of people believe happened. Larry was devastated and begged his mother to bring him back home, and she agreed to. A study showed Larry was of average intelligence, although he didn't do good in school at all. He eventually dropped out and he got his GED. He started attending college on and off, never really finished more than maybe a semester at a time, never got a degree. But while he was at Illinois State University, he met a professor who he became friends with. And we're going to talk about that later. Um, Larry struggled with this fear of abandonment and he also struggled to accept himself and his sexuality he had been raised in a conservative religious household but he was a homosexual man and that becomes really important in his crimes on october 12 1982 
A 21-year-old man in Crown Point, Indiana, was lured into the car of Larry Eiler. He was drugged, beaten, and left for dead in a rural field. The young man survived, and 11 days later, the body of 19-year-old Stephen Crockett was found in Kankakee County, Illinois, which is near the Indiana border. Stephen had been stabbed more than 20 times. Drugs and alcohol were in his system on autopsy. Stephen was born in 1963 in the Chicago area, and although he was only 19, he had a somewhat troubled life. Um, He had worked as a male prostitute and was well known for that. And so really the media looked down on him. I read a couple articles from right when they found his body and it was very much victim blaming. And like, if you read this article, you would think this 19 year old kid was like a drug kingpin or something the way they talk about him. One week later, 26 year old Edgar Underclawfer disappeared from Rantoul, Illinois. His remains were not found until March of 1983 in a field in Illinois. Soon after, 25-year-old John J.J. Johnson disappeared from the Chicago area. He was found dead on Christmas Day, 1982. On November 20th, 1982, 19-year-old William Lewis was abducted near Vincennes, Indiana. His remains were found but remained unidentified until 2021 when forensic genealogy was used to finally bring peace to the Lewis family. All the victims that disappeared were young gay men and they were found with their pants down around their ankles and most of them were bound. Um, So, you know, we're talking just a few weeks here and we've got four victims. Stephen Agin, 23-year-old from Terre Haute, Indiana, was abducted in December of 1982. His body was found in a wooded area in Indiana on December 28th. Stephen's murder was particularly brutal. He was found stabbed several times, pants around his ankles, but what really devastated those that responded to that scene is he had been disemboweled his insides were on the outside and in an interview that his mother gave she said she asked the funeral home if she could see him and they said no that his body was in shape that was worse than any car accident they had ever seen so if you can just imagine this was awful um as they're searching the crime scene area they found an outbuilding near where the body was found and inside they found a large amount of human blood and human flesh. The doctors performing the autopsy believed that the level of rage indicated there had been multiple killers in the murder of Stephen Agin. As the doctor was finishing up Stephen Agin's autopsy, another body was brought in for examination. This time it was the body of 21-year-old John Roach. John had been found close to Interstate 70 in Putnam County, Indiana. The doctor was able to link the murders because their wounds were very similar and both had been found near interstates. In fact, many young men had been found near highways. The police departments hadn't really made a conclusive link yet between the deaths of these several men, but the gay community had and they were already making efforts to try to protect themselves. 
so this is like two months and we're at like seven victims that's nuts right i mean this is not like your one every couple of months serial killer right. this he's, is like he's not boom, taking boom 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 he's not having any cool off periods at all not much on december 30th 1982 the seventh victim was found in just a few months or, i'm sorry the seventh victim was abducted this was 22 year old david block he disappeared from highland park illinois he told his family he was visiting a friend in nearby Highwood. And while he disappeared December 30th, 1982, his body was not found until May 7th of 1984 along Illinois Route 173. So 1982 from October to December, we've got seven victims. That's insane. I have never seen a no. serial killer that killed that rapidly. No, like a lot of seven, like a lot of serial killers will have seven victims total. Right. You know, over the course of months and years, and he's got it within like a quarter of a of a year. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, 1982 was not. You know, that wasn't the whole period we're talking because he started 1983 off with a bang on january 24th 1983 16 year old irvin gibson was abducted and murdered in lake county illinois his body would not be discovered however until april 15th he was found alongside a dog that had also been stabbed to death like now you're killing the dog well i mean shit now i am not seriously gonna sit here and say like the dog is sadder than the humans. Of course it's not. But it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and you're like, don't kill the dog. Right. I just, I don't know. I can't imagine being the officers that responded to these scenes. No, I couldn't either. Um, on May 9th, the body of 21-year-old Daniel McNeve was found in a field in Indiana near State Ro uh, Road 39 in Hendricks County. Daniel had been bound, beaten, stabbed and partially disemboweled like they've got to be putting these pieces together you would think at this point i would think so unfortunately this is the 80s and being a gay man is highly frowned upon especially if you are a sex worker which some of these men were and so it just seems like Maybe the victims weren't garnering the sympathy that they really, truly deserve. That seems to be a theme this season, too. Yeah. Um, like several of the other victims, you know, Daniel's pants were also found around his ankles. So that seemed to be a signature in these killings. Nine days later, 25-year-old Richard Bruce was murdered in Effingham, Illinois. His body was thrown into a creek where it was discovered on December 5th, 1983. By this point, police had finally begun to connect the crimes and they were monitoring gay bars and clubs. And actually, as I was researching, it was more like they were staking out almost to the point where they felt like it was more harassment towards the gay community than efforts to find the murderer. Right. Um, you know, they were hoping they could solve this before more victims were found. An Indiana newspaper for the gay community called The Works set up an anonymous telephone line for anyone who had information to share. They even offered a reward. 
Finally, a task force was formed by law enforcement to hunt the killer or killers, and this was called the Central Indiana Multi-Agency Investigation Team. So it's been almost a year before we get a task force set up. It's a little crazy, right? Well, I mean, like we're talking about multiple states at this point, multiple towns. Yeah. You know, like it's not it's not like it is today where there's huge databases of information, you know, of unsolved murders and shit like that. Well, that's true. You know, like so but a a year. Yeah, that's getting kind of. It just seems like these were so rapid. Right. Like, that's, I think, what bothers me the most. Like, when they're spread out more... Right, it's hard to find... <laughs> it's hard to make connections. When it's like, boom, 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 I don't know how I think you it's don't a, make that. Well, I think it's hard to make connections, too, because they're thinking... You got, we got to remember, this is the early 80s, you know, serial killers are what? Maybe, like, that term in and, in and of itself is, what, maybe... 20 years old 20 15 20 years old at that point that's true so and they're coming at such a, a success like a rapid succession that they're like well shit i'm still investigating this one right like and then boom another one comes up and then boom and you and like i i'm thinking maybe possibly because it is an lgbtq kind of thing Back in like the early '80s, that was kind of low key. Like you kept all that shit low key. Well, you know, unless, and we're going to talk about that later too. Because you know, that definitely did play a factor into this case. Right. I mean, so all these guys, all these men, yes, they they were gay, but I guarantee they weren't as open about it as people are today. Well, that's yeah. true. You know, so trying to find the connection between oh, gay men, you know. Like, yeah, after you start getting seven, eight, nine people, well, fuck, there's a pattern, guys. Right. (laughs) You know? Well, once the task force was formed, detectives were able to connect more murders from other jurisdictions using the computerized databases. This was something that was relatively new in the early 80s. And so, I mean, it really is the computer technology that helped them finally connect all the dots. And it was soon after that that the murder of 29-year-old Jay Reynolds was connected. He was found in Lexington, Kentucky. 18-year-old Jimmy Roberts was found near Chicago on May 9th, 1983, and he had been stabbed 35 times. So now we've got two more murders connected. Right. And, like, I know we're, I'm kind of hitting on this again, but, like, let's look at the, the span of distance between all these killings. We started in Chicagoland area went down to effingham went to like (laughs) went to kentucky right back up to india like and we're all over indiana like how the hell is anybody supposed to be like people nowadays would have a hard time making a connection i don't know that's an awful lot of victims though we're at about 10 victims already and we're less than a year into this on june 6 1983 a tip came in that seemed pretty promising The man said he believed the killer preying on gay men in Illinois and Indiana was Larry Eiler. He explained that Eiler had once been charged with stabbing a hitchhiker in 1978. He also explained that Larry Eiler was often violent, enjoyed bondage, and was a gay man who was very much ashamed of his sexuality. Larry lived in the Terre Haute area and worked at a liquor store near the interstate. 
The tipster also advised police that Eiler had drugged a 14-year-old boy and abandoned him naked in the woods in May of 1982. You remember the 1982 incident? Yep. Yeah. So let's go back and let's talk about this um, stabbing of a hitchhiker in 1978. This is where you're going to get mad. On August 3rd, 1978, a young man was stabbed in the chest. Paramedics were able to save his life, and the victim, who we'll call Craig, uh, shared that he had been propositioned by a man for sex. His attacker then violently stabbed him. So Craig said he pretended to be dead so that his attacker would leave, and once his attacker left, he crawled to a nearby farmhouse for help. So the EMS comes, the paramedics are taking care of him, and he's telling them this story. And as he's telling them this story, Larry Eiler shows up at the scene. He admitted he stabbed along. He said it was an accident that he forgot he had the knife in his hand. I'm just looking at his response here. He's just like shaking his head, guys. It's kind of funny. Inside the car, they found a sword tear gas, and handcuffs. Larry Eiler should have been arrested and placed in prison right then in 1978, and perhaps dozens of murders would have been prevented. But that's not what happened. His lawyers paid his victim $2,500 to refuse to testify against Larry Eiler. Larry Eiler's only punishment for stabbing this young man in the chest was a $43 fine. How the fuck how the fuck did that happen so like there's a lot of theories and this is where it gets into it's the early 80s and people don't want to admit their sexuality it is widely believed that robert little who was the professor that gary eiler was living with right um provided the 2500 dollars to mr craig who did not want to go on record and testify that he was a gay prostitute. And so it was easier for him just to take the money and let it go. How the fuck, though, do you get away with stabbing? And then your defense is, I forgot I had a knife in my hand. Right. Are you fucking kidding me? And then they search your car and there's a sword and tear gas and handcuffs. Because that's not fucking ominous at all. Right. <laughs> and uh, oh, I'm so sorry, buddy. I accidentally stabbed you with the knife that I forgot was in my hand. I left because I thought you were dead, but then I came back. Right. Go fuck yourself. Are you kidding me? And this shows you how bad the stigma of being a gay man was in 1982 yeah. that you would accept $2,500 to let the person who stabbed you in the chest off. And all you get is a $43 fine for, like, for stabbing somebody. Right. Fuck. Okay. Right? And unfortunately, this led to devastating consequences. Yeah, because he, like, all of this could have been prevented. Yep. Oh, it gets worse. We're not done yet. The FBI developed a profile on the killer who had not yet been identified. So they hadn't for sure decided this was Larry Eiler yet. Right. The FBI profile predicted the killer was a white male in his late 20s or early 30s who worked in a menial profession. 
The profile suggested the killer would have a rough exterior but hated himself deep down because of his sexual attraction to other males. The FBI believed the killer would present himself as a hater of homosexuals, although he was one. The profile also believed that an older and more intelligent male was likely an accomplice in at least some of the murders. Wow. Right? That's fucking spot on. Like, this is why I... It's describing Larry Eiler to a freaking T. And then the fucking uh, professor that he was living with. Uh Uh-huh. Like, this is why I love, <laughs> like, Mindhunter. They need to bring it back. They need like, to. Like, they were teasing us with the BTK stuff, and they never got to finish it. Right. Like, if anything, for one season, just to finish off the BTK stuff. Right. Like, we need to make a petition. Yes. To, to get it back I, I think but we're, anyway, we're one of many people that right. want that show to come back. I, it just boggles my mind that they're able... Oh, yeah, he works a menial job. Larry Eilers works at a liquor store. You know, he... This man hates himself because he's gay. Larry Eiler hates himself for being gay. Yeah. You know? Oh, and then it's possible that there's a a higher intelligence person with, as an accomplice. Oh, so the fucking professor that he lives with. Yeah. Interesting, huh? Very interesting. The FBI profile was similar to the task force prime suspect, Larry Eiler. It was not enough, though, for an arrest. Authorities were tailing Larry Eiler. They were watching his every move. They watched him cruise gay bars in the Chicago area. They tried to keep an eye on him, but they just couldn't. And unfortunately, the murders didn't stop. On July 2nd, 1983, the body of Gustavo Herrera was found in rural Lake County, Illinois. The victim had been repeatedly stabbed in the abdomen Eight weeks later, the body of 28-year-old Ralph Calise was found in a field close to a tollway near Illinois Route 60. Ralph had been stabbed 17 times and was partially disemboweled. So that is now the third that they've sliced open to the point that you've got intestines everywhere. Like, and I'm sorry to be so crude, but like, this is not our run-of-the-mill serial killer. No, this is somebody that has a vendetta. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and it it it, it shows. It's just know? beyond disturbing. The serial killer was now known as the Highway Killer, and he was working at a very rapid pace. On September 30th, 1983, Larry Eiler was pulled over in Lowell, Indiana, on a routine traffic stop. When they ran his ID, they learned that although there was no warrant, he was the prime suspect in the Highway serial killers or serial killings. He was found with a young hitchhiker in his car. He was detained for solicitation of a male prostitute and the police searched Larry's vehicle without his consent. And the officers rallied, um, to notify him or I'm sorry, the officers failed to notify him that he was under arrest inside his vehicle. Police found rope and other suspicious items At this time, they impounded his vehicle, although they did not have a court order to do so. Oh, he's going to get off because of that shit. Oh, my God. It's the... Oh, my God. Okay. It's just going to get worse. The task force came to question Eiler, who they already suspected was the serial killer they were hunting. 
Eiler declined to speak with them about his sexuality, and he denied committing any murders. He did give consent for detectives to search his vehicle, although it had already been searched, and obtained fingerprints at this time. He even volunteered for a polygraph test. And I couldn't find for sure the results of that polygraph, but what I've heard um, through research, through speculation, nothing that I can substantiate is that he passed the polygraph. Inside the truck, police found a knife, rope, hammer, handcuffs, bat, mallet, and surgical tape. Larry Eiler's boots matched plaster cast of shoe imprints taken from the scene of Ralph Kalisa's murder. They also found human blood on one of his knives. Detectives could not officially place him under arrest yet, however, so Eiler was set free with his truck. However, the evidence was enough to secure a search warrant for Larry Eiler's home that he shared with his roommate. Larry was living with the middle-aged man named Robert Little, who was a professor at Indiana State University. Inside the home, receipts were found that placed Eiler near several of the crime scenes. Phone records show Eiler placed calls to Little from the Chicago area at all hours of the night and near establishments where many of the victims had disappeared. One of these calls came on April 8th from Cook County Hospital. This is the day that Gustavo Herrera is believed to have been murdered. Eiler was treated at Cook County Hospital for a deep laceration to his hand. He told the ER that he cut himself on a beer bottle. Receipts prove that Eiler purchased handcuffs and a knife the following day. So they're getting quite a bit of evidence here. I mean, a lot of it's circumstantial, but they're right. this evidence is mounting up where they have to be able to make an arrest, right? Right. The task force learned that Larry Eiler shared his time between living with Robert Little in Terre Haute and a man named John Dabrowski in Chicago. John was married with children, but his wife seemed understanding and tolerant of John and Larry's sexual relationship. There also seemed to be a pattern between arguments between Larry and John and the abduction of victims in the Chicago area. Gotcha. It just gets weirder, right? After being released from custody in early October, Larry Eiler hired a lawyer from Chicago and he filed a civil suit against the Lake County Sheriff's Office and the Indiana State Police, citing harassment and violation of his civil rights. He sought $250,000 in damages. At this, I mean... Yeah, I, I, I have to uh, kind of like, as much as it pains me, you weren't read your Mirandas, you weren't placed under arrest, you were illegally searched. Yep. On October 4th, 1983, mushroom hunters discovered a human torso in a plastic bag in rural Kenosha County, Wisconsin. The victim was identified as 18-year-old Eric Hansen, who had just disappeared the week prior. Eric's skull and hands were never found. He was the first of the victims to be dismembered in this way. Two weeks later, the decomposing remains of four more victims were found in Lake Village, Indiana. These victims had been dead for several months and were partially buried. All four had been stabbed dozens of times and their trousers were pulled down around their ankles. I mean, there's a pattern. <laughs> yeah. On October 29th, 1983, Larry Eiler was formally charged for murder for Ralph Kalisa's murder. That's the one where they found his boot prints matched the plaster cast. Bond was set at $1 million, 
and another search of Robert Little's home was um, done. They collected like 200 pieces of evidence. However, none of it definitively linked Eiler or Little to the murders. In December of 1983, an evidentiary hearing determined that police detained Larry Eiler following the traffic stop and searched his vehicle without probable cause. The defense won their motions to suppress all evidence collected between September 30th and November 22nd. All that evidence. Well, I mean, and this is one of those things where it's like, this is the cop's fault. I agree. Like, I know you guys, like, I understand that they're so in a hurry to get information and shit, but They knew he was a killer, but they didn't follow the right protocols to make sure the evidence was admissible. Right. They were trying, I understand they were probably just trying to protect people. The person he was with on that traffic stop was likely going to be a victim. Right. If they hadn't intervened. So I get it. But unfortunately, you know, this caused some major issues. On December 7th, 1983, a hunter found a body in Hendricks County near U.S. Route 40. The victim was 17-year-old Richard Wayne. He had disappeared in March of 1983 while traveling to his home in Montpelier, Indiana. An unidentified male victim was found nearby the same day. Larry Eiler remained in jail awaiting the outcome of his defense's motions to suppress the rest of the evidence under the grounds that Larry's constitutional rights had been violated. He won this ruling and he was freed on February 6, 1984. Fucking hell. Right? Like, because uh, people couldn't do stuff correctly, he's, uh, he's walking. Four weeks after his release, Larry Eiler relocated permanently to Chicago. Police in both Indiana and Illinois knew that Larry Eiler was a dangerous serial killer freed on a technicality. Not a technicality. Poor planning. Like, poor... Like, you didn't do your job. Right. Like, let's not call it a technicality. Technicality is when it's like a circuit, like, oh, hey, you skirted around the law. No, you didn't skirt around shit. Like, and I hate... I, God damn, I hate defending this but damn it you knew this he like you said you knew he was a killer you knew that this dude was doing this shit but and i would make sure that i'm crossing every fucking t dotting every i and making sure the margins are fucking there well basically what they were saying is they didn't have probable cause to detain him so this is where it gets sticky if you highly suspected this was a serial killer and he has a young male victim to be in his car you don't have probable cause to detain do you detain or do you consider that probable cause you know what i'm saying like i don't know that i don't know that the first i mean along the way yes there were mistakes made but that original officer who detained him i don't know that i can put the blame on him you okay so this is gonna sound really shitty I think he was trying to do the right thing. I think he was trying to like I like I think he was trying to do the right thing too. But let's get like let's not get it twisted. How many times have we seen cops go up to for probable cause to search and detain? It smells like marijuana in here. It smells like you've been drinking. Right. Is it right? No. And I, maybe the officer didn't even know, like, who this fucker was and that there was all this. I'm, I'm sure he didn't. I'm sure he didn't know that there was such, like, a task force 
designated just for this one fucking guy. Well, my understanding is when he ran his ID, that's when he was informed, informed that this was the prime suspect in the serial killings. Well, at, at which point he decided to detain him with a young man in his vehicle. Just because you're a suspect doesn't like you. God damn. I know, but what do you do? It's like, do you just let this guy go free when you have a strong suspicion he's about to go murder this young person but, in his car? Oh, I don't know. I that, mean, I understand the searches and stuff after that. That was totally not done by the book. I get that, but I don't know if I can blame that original officer. I don't. Th I don't know. You're right. It's a sticky fucking situation. Like, do you just say, "Oh, well, I don't have probable cause," so sorry, guy. Have fun getting murdered. Right. Like, what do you say to like? You can't. I don't know. It's just messed up. But nonetheless, you know, Larry gets released he starts off 1984 in chicago and it's interesting because this apartment he was staying in in chicago was being paid for by robert little robert little was also paying for his furniture and bought him a new set of tires for his truck i wonder why right at his lawyer's insistence larry apparently cut ties with john his married lover but that didn't really last long on the morning of August 21st, 1984, a janitor discovered bags in a garbage dumpster that he believed had been illegally dumped. So my understanding is this area was not a very rich neighborhood. And so when he saw like name brand hefty bags, he's like, well, those didn't come from my tenants. Right. So he decides to open one so he can kind of try to figure out who dumped them. And when he opens it, he finds a severed human leg. Jesus. The police are called. They discover several bags with severed body parts of 16-year-old victim Daniel Bridges. Daniel was the youngest of 13 children. He was known as a juvenile delinquent. Um, he had actually been good friends with a previous victim, Irvin Gibson. And he actually once told a news reporter that Larry Eiler was, quote, a real freak, end quote. Fuck. Daniel worked as a male prostitute since the age of 12. Daniel Bridges had been abducted by Larry Eiler on August 19, 1984. He was bound to a chair, beaten, tortured, and stabbed to death. Eiler then dismembered the boy in his bathroom and put his remains in trash bags. Witnesses saw Larry Eiler dumping the trash bags in the bin early that morning. So while police are still at the scene, somebody tells them, we saw that guy who lives over there. I think his name's Larry Eiler. And of course, the hair on the back of their neck stands up and they know that this is the serial killer that's right. striking again. But they go over to his apartment and instantly search Eiler's apartment based off this probable cause. And they discover copious amounts of blood that was confirmed to belong to Daniel Bridges. Daniel's clothing was found in Eiler's apartment and Eiler's fingerprints were found on the trash bags. So doesn't seem like he's going to get out of this one. I mean, you got to think this is a man who stabbed somebody in the chest, got away with it. Committed several murders, got away with it. And here we go again. Oh. <sighs> I don't know. What are your thoughts? Do you think he's going to get away with it again? I don't know. I really don't know. Because this, I mean, did the cops actually do the shit the right way this time is what I'm hoping. It would appear. On August 22nd, 1984, Larry Eiler was arrested for the murder of Daniel Bridges. 
Larry denied being involved in the murder and said his fingerprints must have gotten on the bags incidentally from when he dumped his own garbage in the bin. Whatever. I don't... (laughs) The state of Illinois sought the death penalty against Larry Eiler. Also charged him with aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and concealment of a homicide. John Dabrowski was at Larry's apartment at the time of his arrest and was also arrested but was released due to lack of evidence. Okay. Larry Eiler's trial began July 1st, 1986 in Cook County. Robert Little testified that he had been with Larry the day of the abduction, but he left for Terre Haute around 10.30 p.m. They believe Daniel was abducted around 11, so shortly after Little would have left. Okay. He denied any knowledge or participation in the crime. John Dabrowski testified for the prosecution, stating that he called Eiler three times that night, and he said that at 2.45 a.m., Larry told him that Robert was still there. Hmm. So... Not so sure about Robert Little now. John said he told Larry that he would come over, but Larry said, no, don't do that. I'll come to you instead. Larry showed up. He had recently been showered and was not interested in sex, with which made John believe that he had already engaged in sexual activity that night. The forensic evidence against Larry Eiler was insurmountable. I mean, you've got the victim's blood all over his apartment. You've got the victim's clothing there. You've got his fingerprints on the bag. So the jury, they took less than three hours to deliberate before they returned a guilty verdict against Larry Eiler. Right. Larry Eiler was convicted of aggravated kidnapping, unlawful restraint, and first-degree murder. He showed no signs of emotion as the verdict was read. In the penalty phase, Larry's mother, sister, and stepfather and a Catholic chaplain testified as character witnesses. They portrayed Larry as a good man who sustained abuse at the hands of his mother's numerous husbands. The defense claimed that the circumstantial evidence was not sufficient to impose a death penalty. But the jury disagreed, citing the brutality and heinous nature of the murder of Daniel Bridges. Larry Eiler was sentenced to death. Good. In 1988, Larry Eiler appealed his conviction. Eiler now claimed that while he did dispose of Daniel Bridges, he now said Robert Little was the murderer. His appeal was denied and an execution date was set. Larry Hyler up uh, Larry Hyler hired up and coming attorney Kathleen Zellner. So you probably know Kathleen Zellner now. She was involved in representing several felons that had their convictions overturned, including Kevin Fox. Do you remember we covered Riley Fox? Yep. The three-year-old whose dad was accused. and Yeah. Um, She was his attorney, and she's also, right now, she's Stephen Avery's attorney. Okay. Um, At this time, though, Kathleen had not become famous for overturning wrongful convictions. She was still kind of up and coming. Um... While awaiting execution, Indiana sought to charge Larry Eiler in the murder of Stephen Agin. Stephen Agin is the victim, the first one who was disemboweled. Right. Uh, Larry Eiler agreed to confess to the crime, but he insisted Robert Little had been his accomplice in the murder of Stephen Agin. Eiler provided a 17-page confession in December of 1990, and he pled guilty to Stephen Egan's murder. He was sentenced to 60 years in the Indiana Department of Corrections. Robert Little, who was at this point in 1990, now 53 years old, was arrested and charged with the murder of Stephen Egan. He was, of course, put 
on suspension from Indiana State University, where he worked as a professor. Little pled not guilty. The star witness was Larry Eiler. <laughs> Problem is, when your star witness is a convicted serial killer... Right. There's not very, a lot of credibility. Right. And there really wasn't a whole lot of other evidence besides Larry. So, Robert Little was acquitted of the murder... He was reinstated as a professor at Illinois State University following his acquittal. Doesn't that make you sick? It does. You know this motherfucker was involved. Yeah, but I mean. I mean, come on. If you can't prove it, you can't prove it. You know? I know. I know. But, it sucks. But... And then he gets to work around all these young people in a college. Right. Like, that's disturbing as hell. If I was a parent of a kid going to Illinois or Indiana State University, I would have had a stroke. Following the hearings for Stephen Agin's murder, Kathleen Zellner approached law enforcement with proposition. Larry Eiler had agreed to confess and close over 20 open murder cases, but he wanted something. He wanted his death sentence commuted to life. Of course he did. Many jurisdictions were eager to take these confessions. You got to think this is multiple jurisdictions, multiple counties, multiple prosecutors. Most right. of them were like, Yes. Yes, let's do it. Let's get these families closure. Cook County, who is who convicted Chicago. him of Daniel Bridges' murder. Right. That's the one that you really got. It. That's who it's going to come down to. Right. They said absolutely not. Daniel Bridges' family deserves justice. We are not overturning his death conf- con- uh, penalty. They're, they're not doing it. They're right. not going to commute it. They're like, no, absolutely freaking not. They will not spare Larry Eiler's life. And so Larry Eiler took his secrets to the grave. Do you agree with that, with the prosecutor? No. I don't know. You can go both ways on it, though. Is it is it fair if it was our child? Would it be fair if they let their murderer, if they changed their death sentence to life to close other? I just, but I I'm don't getting, know. But I'm giving the closure to other, like 20 other, fucking 20 other families. But if he's confessing to over 20 other murders, do we really want to let him out of his death sentence? No, but I like they're saying, though, I kind of want to give those families closure. I, I don't know. I can see it both ways. I can, too, but... Uh, it really didn't matter because Larry Eiler was not executed. Larry Eiler died March 6, 1994 at Pontiac Correctional Center while on death row. His cause of death was complications from AIDS. Which was I hate a thing back then. Yeah. Following his death, Kathleen Zellner held a press conference. Her client had given his attorney permission to disclose his crimes following his death. So this tells you what kind of person he was. He was always going to confess and tell them who we all killed. He just wasn't going to do it until after he died unless he could get something out of it. Right. That's what it sounds like. I mean, that's shitty. It is very shitty. Larry had confessed to over 20 murders. Some he knew by name, others only by details of the crimes. And that includes all the ones that we've talked about. In Larry's post, I can't say that word. Posthumous. Posthumous? Yes, that's that word. Confessions, he still contended that Robert Little was involved in most of the murders. Which makes me think even more that Robert Little got off easy yeah larry's written confessions which his attorney was legally bound to keep 
until his death. So first of all, let's put ourselves in Kathleen Zellner's position. This killer tells you, I did kill all these people. Right. And it's attorney-client privilege. You can't tell anyone. When I die, you can. But until then, you have to keep all this in your head and keep defending me. And she did. Right. Even after his death, she was still trying to get his convictions overturned. (laughs) Which tells you, like, my first impression of Kathleen Zellner is I think she's full of shit. Right. That's, That's what it sounds like. Yeah. But to have to live with that. Can you imagine that? That would suck. To know that your client did this, but you can't do anything about it. To know that you could bring peace to all these families and you can't do shit. You're not allowed. And had he not given her permission, she wouldn't have been allowed to even after his death. Right. She would have been disbarred. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? It is. Larry Eiler murdered at least 21 young men between 1982 and 1984. 21 in two years. And that's just what we know of for sure. Right. Larry's known victims include Stephen Crockett, Edgar Underclaufer, John Johnson, William Lewis, Stephen Egan, John Roach, David Block, Irvin Gibson, John Bartlett, Michael Bauer, Richard Wayne, Jay Reynolds, Gustavo Herrera, Jimmy Roberts, Daniel McNeve, Richard Bruce, John Brandenburg, Keith Bibbs, Ralph Calise, Eric Hansen, and Daniel Bridges. His victims were mostly young white males who engaged in homosexual activity, but at least one was Hispanic and two were black. That's a lot of fucking people in two mm-hmm. years. That's a lot. That's a lot. Even for like like serial killers. Right. In 1994, Daniel Bridges' parents sued Robert Little, who they believe was responsible for their son's murder. This is the one that he was finally convicted of. Um, Not Robert Little, but Larry Eiler. Yep. Uh, The family hoped to win several million dollars for wrongful death. The uh, Bridges family was represented by Kathleen Zellner. Fucking. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) You're representing the victims... Of the man you represented and we're still trying to get right. That's the conviction so overturned. Up. Oh my God. Like so, what the fuck? Like fuck you. I think she just had a vendetta against Robert Little who I still believe is guilty as shit. Don't right. get me wrong. But how fucked up is that? That you just got done and actually we're still pursuing trying to prove somebody's innocence. Who admitted to murder? Right. And then you're going to represent his victim's family. I'm sorry, but if I was a Bridges family, no way in hell would I have hired his murderer's defense attorney. No. The case was later dismissed. Of course. Uh, Stephen Egan's family also sued the professor. Now, Stephen Egan is the the young man who Robert Little did go to court and had a trial for killing, but was acquitted. Um, The Egan family settled a lawsuit with Robert Little in 1995 out of court. Both parties agreed to keep the information confidential. Even more guilt. Why are you fucking settling? I'm telling you, this dude's guilty as shit. Why are you fucking settling? Um, These last four pictures on our blog post, these were four John Doe's that were not identified for several years. Uh, Many of Larry Eiler's victims were just that. They were John Doe's. Experts began using forensic genealogy to identify unknown victims more than 40 years after their murders. The final victim was Keith Bibbs, and he was uh, formerly known as Adam Doe. 
and they finally identified him just this month in September of Holy 2023. Shit. Is that Damn. isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Forty years later, they finally identified Keith Bibbs just this year, just this month. Yeah. Michael Bauer and John Bartlett were also identified using the same technology. And if you guys don't know, forensic genealogy is where they use DNA to find, like, if you've gone Relative. on to, like, Ancestry or 23andMe right. and they find relatives and then they try to figure out who this person is. Right. John Brandenburg Jr. was also identified um, just, I think, in 2021. Keith Bibbs was that final missing puzzle piece. There was one detective who had been trying to identify these four boys for almost 40 years, and he finally finished his mission. Well, good on him. Yep. Keith's identification this month was the final missing puzzle piece. Um, there's a couple other things that I find troubling. I searched and searched and searched and searched, and I can't figure out what happened to Robert Little. He was born in 1937, so... I want to say he's probably dead, but I couldn't find anything right. to prove that. I don't know if he's dead. I didn't see where he was ever charged with another crime. So if you guys know, let me know. I highly believe that he, you know, even the FBI profile thought there was an older, more intelligent man involved. Right. I'm telling you, Robert Little was involved in at least some of them. Oh, Maybe yeah. not every single not every one. S- but he had his hand in, in something. Right. Like, you're not getting that buddy-buddy. And buying stuff for him and paying for an apartment and furnishing it and all the other shit. If you didn't like if you didn't know what the fuck was going on. Right. So I just wonder what happened to Robert Little. Um, John Dabrowski, I, I think I found, but he's never been convicted or even really accused of a crime, so I didn't feel like I needed to provide that information. Right. And that, that and he seemed more like the lover. Yeah. More than anything else, you know, like, and like they said earlier, like whenever Larry and him would get into a spat, yeah, there would be a new murder. Right. It's fucked up case. Yeah. It it's really, really is. fucked up. Um, a lot of this goes back to, you know, the first victim that escaped and, you know, took $2,500 not to testify. Right. That shows you the stigma that was attached to gay men in the early 80s. You know, and this is also, you know, around the same time that the AIDS epidemic started. And they would rather take $2,500 and let their would-have-been-killer walk free than testify in court. Right. That's fucked. Like, I'm glad we've... Evolved a little. Evolved as a society to that. Like, it's it's still not perfect... But we're getting there. Right. Um, If you guys want to see pictures, I don't have pictures of every victim, but I found several. Um, So I did post all of them. I think it's important that we remember the victims and not just Larry fucking Eiler. Um, So uh, if you want to see the pictures or look at the numerous references that I used for this story, head on over to the blog at www.themidwestcrimefiles.com. Like and follow us on Facebook. Um, if you want to become a member of our tribe, like the the gals we did shout outs to earlier on the show, um, head on over to our Patreon page. There are lots of exclusive episodes and content for your for you guys. Um, we appreciate our Patreon supporters so much. Yep. And then on that note, I think we're done for the day. So we will see you guys next week. All right. Bye. Bye.